But the tragic irony of today's generation is that while we have never understood more, right, we've split the atoms and all that, we seem to be more confused than ever before. Enlightenment and understanding seem to have a converse effect. And the more we know, the less we understand. Science has unlocked many mysteries and developed many theories, but have proven completely inadequate when it comes to, to, I would say, simple things, but things like personal identity, morality, and even reality itself seems to be in question. A couple of months ago, the world celebrated music. In about a month, they'll celebrate movies. And it seems to be that more often than not, it's a reflection of the emptiness, tragedy, and even the loneliness that so many people experience in the world today. The essential problems of the world have never changed, and nothing the world offers can ever satisfy that need. As the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? You've seen it. On the one hand, it's tragic that we're still, still dealing with the same problems, but on the other hand, it is good to know that God's Word and the solution to life's questions and problems never changes. The heart of man is forever, right? Jeremiah said it, is forever evil, right? And desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the message of God's Word still addresses the heart of the matter, and that is forever the same, whatever else may change. In today's passage, so we're in John chapter 9, Jesus interacts with a man who is born into physical darkness, living in spiritual darkness, and he's doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping that today something might change. It is an illustration of the world living in darkness. To this blind man, Jesus repeats his claim down in verse 5, I am the light of the world. You remember that John first established this back in chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And by Jesus repeating this claim of enlightenment, he elevates this heartwarming miracle. You would think, wow, what a, what a beautiful little story we have here. This story is taken from a heartwarming miracle to a life-changing message. What we will witness is a fascinating illustration of man's sinful condition and God's miraculous provision through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every story you read in the gospel should be considered in that way. And the first thing we understand is that sin is a congenital problem. Now by that I mean simply hereditary. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, as the world wants to pinpoint who's at fault. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned. So it's not because of sin, of something they've done wrong, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest. One of the many fascinating things or developments in modern medicine is the ability of a specialist to diagnose a problem earlier than ever before. You hear this all the time, early diagnosis, early diagnosis. And sometimes while still in the womb. And now we even hear the conversation of the genetic makeup of a person. And they'll say, this person is, is genetically predisposed to this problem. And so even before the child is even conceived, they're having conversations about some of the problems that might arise. These conditions are considered congenital. That's why I would use that word, hereditary, or something that you are born with. And the disciples had brought this man's condition into that level of conversation, something that a person is born with. And perhaps there's a cause that we can pass on from his parents, and we can blame someone else or something else for the problems of this man. And those of you with any spiritual discernment can read this story and begin to immediately see that where this diagnosis is taking us. It is to the question of original sin. If you're still connecting the bad that happens in life to the bad that someone may have done, then you are likely still going to ask that age-old question. So then why do bad things happen to good people? And so the world's understanding of sin concludes that if we can eliminate these congenital effects, now by that, simply we would say people that are born into poverty. If we can eliminate poverty, people that are born into poor social conditions, if we can eliminate these poor social conditions, people that are born into uh, uh, places where food is uh, not well cared for, so you don't have good dietary need. If we can change dietary prey, if we can change all of this, we'll spend the world's wealth to change it all, and they, by the way, they include abortion in this conversation. If we can take the world's wealth to improve a person's condition, well, then we will eliminate these congenital problems, right? So the problems that people have from birth, if we can eliminate those things, then we'll change the world. But Jesus takes the conversation from one of this uh, sort of single dimensional focus when you say it's well this for that and he applies the effect of sin to the world which is in general decline because of sin and no medicine no money no human effort can change that fact God is in no way the cause of sin God is in no way the cause of sickness and death but it is, you will see, to the glory of God, verse 3, that God's power might be made manifest. It is to the glory of God that His work to conquer sin and death might be made manifest. Man is born into sin, and to bring it into a sort of spiritual context, we are not born blind because we have sinned, but... We are sinners because we are born blind. There is original sin. And because of that blindness, 
we will sin. For the born blind condition of man, there is an urgent need. Verse 4, I must work, and your translation may say it differently. We'll come back to this phrase. But I must work the works of him that sent me. So Jesus, you're attributing, obviously, to him saying this. So the work that he must do, while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. And Jesus seems less interested in discussing the past history of this man and more concerned with applying the solution to the symptom and solving the root problem. By the way, may I just say, I am really glad for that. I am glad that God is not interested in having a conversation about my past or your past or the past of somebody else that may be living in sin, but he's more concerned with the present. Right here, right now, do you understand what he has done to save the sinner? It's not based upon your past life, goodness or badness. Not a word. It's not based upon that, but what you believe about him. The question of the disciples is the same conversation we hear in the world today. It typically concludes with something of blame. Can we blame the parents? Can we blame the Conditions of health and wellness without any consideration of the root problem. And so we legislate, legalize, and leverage the world's wealth to improve a person's condition, and we only end up ever back where we started, right? You can change every other thing about the world, but if it doesn't reach their soul, we will always end up back where we started. That's why it concludes in Revelation chapter 3. They're still wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind. The work of God is not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. I don't care what some television preachers might tell you, but that's not the work of God. It's not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise in this world, but James 5 says it is to convert the sinner and save the soul from eternal death. Now there's a subtle, but it is significant, way that Jesus here involves each of us in this work. It's subtle, but it is significant. Your translation may improve upon it, but it still, I think, is going to miss a little bit of the, of, the, of the intent. So when you see this, the verse starts out, I must work the works of him that sent me, right? You see it, the work, the works. That's the way King James, so he says, I must, but it's followed by a, a plural verb, right? Works. And so they kind of complicate the phrase, I must work the works. In the English, we wouldn't say, I works, but we would take the plural and we apply it to the noun and we say now, we work, right? We don't say, I works, but it's plural, and so we would say, we work. But it is significant to understand that what we are working is the work of God. So that we would never presume that this work is ours alone. We work the work of God. Right? That's the intent of this phrase. The disciples have been witness to the most incredible work of Jesus, but the real purpose for Jesus' coming is what we are called to promote and to be involved in, to preach the gospel to tell people about Jesus, to tell people that there is a Savior, to tell people there is hope beyond the grave, 
to tell people that there is a, an answer to their need. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason he came. As Paul would later describe it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. And then the urgency of the work is emphasized by the contrast Jesus makes here between night and day, the shortness of daylight. Um, I mean, I no sooner get in my car to drive home and it's dark, right, this time of year. You have that sense of, you know, in the summertime, you can kind of say, well, when I get home, I'm going to do, but now, this time of year, when I get home, is I don't want to really go out and do anything. You know, it's dark. And that's the sense, right? Before there was electricity, before there was round-the-clock, you know, production in, in the places to understand that we have to make opportunity while the light shines. Jesus is clearly establishing the urgency with which we must work and the seriousness of the condition that we must address. Now, I don't want to sound condemning, but I will at least raise the question. Have we become complacent in the comfort of our lives and we've lost the urgency of this message? Do we spend more time complaining about the unfair circumstances we face while the blind step off the edge and fall into a Christless eternity? There is a story... A very quiet, sort of unassuming missionary, Amy Carmichael. If I said her name, Amy Carmichael, you'd probably think of some singer or something. But this was a missionary to India, Amy Carmichael. If you've ever read her story, beautiful story, beautiful uh, testimony. She, felt, she says she felt thrust into the mission field of India by a disturbing dream. And here's what she wrote. Hundreds of unreached people plunging over a cliff to their deaths while Christians sat and made daisy chains. This was her description of a dream. Jesus wants the church to enter the work with urgency of a setting sun that operates on a timetable all its own and waits for no man. Do we still have an urgency? Do we still see the world as dropping into a Christless eternity? Do we still care to make our testimony known while the light is shining, while the day is still with us, while the opportunity is before us? And to this unique, urgent problem, Jesus offers an, an equally unique solution. We go on with verse 5. As long as I'm in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And we all say, that sounds gross. And he says unto him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which, by interpretation, means what? Sent. And who is the sent one? There's a, there's a lot of beautiful illustration here. The uniqueness of the presence of Jesus is demonstrated in the uniqueness of the way the need is met. 
Jesus is backing up his unique claim to be the light of the world. Not only is the action unique, but the instructions given are even more significant. The emphasis now falls. So it's, you know, he just does this random thing, right? And he puts it on the eyes. But the emphasis now falls in the command he gives. Go and rinse in the pool of Siloam, which by interpretation means sent, right? So the sent one. And John would later write in 1 John 4, we have seen and we do testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This man is now sent to go to the one who has been sent. So in all of this understanding of the gospel message, is sent now to be the testimony of the sent one, Jesus, the light of the world. As with all miracles, obedience to the words of Jesus are key. When you read through the miracles in the Gospels, the key is always obedience to the words of our Lord. Because salvation is never imposed on someone. Romans 10 says, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of God. Always. The power of salvation is on full display in the supernatural interaction of of this uh, occasion, which now we are sent, or He is sent, to tell others about. Jesus, or just as the claims of Jesus are demonstrated in the unique circumstances of this blind beggar, the claims of Jesus are demonstrated in the unique circumstances of your life. My dear friend, You have a story to tell. What Christ has done in your life may not seem as dramatic as making clay and and wiping it on your eyes and telling you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, but it is a story that you will have to tell, just as this blind beggar, and you'll see the whole story unfold in just a moment, but we have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right, a story of truth and mercy, a story of peace and light, the old gospel song. You, my friend, are the endorsement to the unique power of God to save a soul, and the proof is in the dramatic change that takes place. Verse 7 continues, So he went his way, therefore, washed, and came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, And they which before had seen him that was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, It's like him. But he said, I'm he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received sight, and then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. And we'll come to the rest of the story quickly in a moment. The outcome could have hardly been more dramatic. You see it there in verse 7. It parallels there in verse 11 what he did. He went, he washed, and he came seeing. That's a simple message. Jesus demanded what may have seemed like a bizarre ritual, but one simple enough for anyone to understand. Everyone could hear it, understand it, and knew what was being asked of this man. 
Remember that the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John, is all about the good news of salvation, and the interpretation of the story is simple. The instruction of the Gospel is to simply come to Jesus in faith, this sent one, believing that His blood can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what He's setting us up to understand. It may seem strange, the Gospel message. It may seem Uh, like it's foolish, but it is simple enough for everyone to believe, and it is simple enough that if you will simply follow what is said, you will see what the gospel says. To some, it is too simple to believe. To others, it is embarrassing. To some, it is even foolishness. The simple truth is expressed in the words of John Newton's famous song, which I think we might sing on Saturday. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When God works in a person's life, the effect will be as plain to see, and your testimony will be just as simple to declare. When God works in a person's life, people may question again and again and again. And if you read on down through the story, which I'm not going to read all the verses, but if you read on down through the interactions, people will, will question you. And they'll say, are you, you know, who do you think you are now? And what do you think has happened to you? And why do you, you know? And I suppose they're arguing over, you know, doctrinal things maybe, like, how many angels can sit on the head of a pen, or what about predestination and election, and you know all those things that people want to argue about? And that sounds, you know, they're, like they're just arguing about all of these things. And then you get down to verse 25, and there's the simple answer for all of your arguments, for all of your conversations, for all of the things you want to try to split hairs over. What's the answer? Verse 25. And he answered and said, who he is, I can't really tell you. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. All the things you're asking me, all I know is one thing is this. Whereas I was blind, now I see. People will try to drag you into all kinds of arguments about the gospel. They'll try to drag you into all kinds of arguments about which church and, you know, all those kinds of things. Stick with your testimony. Stick with what the Lord has done for you. Stay with what God means to you. Stay with what has happened in your life. Don't try to answer all their questions because it'll just take you further and further away from the gospel truth because all you know, once I was blind, But now I see. Many could hardly believe it. Some even doubted it. But no one could deny it. The power of God to save a sinner dramatically transform a life once blind, but now can see. I don't know what your testimony is and from where you have come in life and where you've been saved from. The circumstances of your past. Remember Jesus? He said, said, that's not... The question, that's not my, you're not going to get saved by your past. You're not going to get saved by your parents. Neither are you condemned for that. You're saved simply by following the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sent one, 
sent to be your Savior. The gospel message. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And you can have a relationship with God the Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 